When Gina spoke last night about the nature of clinging to self, to me and mine, the sense of selfishness that we can experience, and the possibility of not clinging, it spoke from the very center of the teachings of the Buddha, uh, really of the Four Noble Truths of suffering in the world and the conditions that create suffering and the possibility of freeing ourselves, which here we are now on the sixth or seventh day of our practice together, is in a certain way the underlying practice that we share. We come together here and we all experience what the Buddha saw and what motivated his practice. We look at the world we look at ourselves, and if we look with the eyes of compassion, we can see how much confusion and sorrow can be created, created by us within our own experience or in the world around us. And as you've been sitting and walking, my guess is there have been moments when you got caught up in, if not lost, in certain stories And by being identified and lost in them for a time, also you felt the suffering of it. A couple from snowy Minnesota decided to take a winter vacation back in the simple Florida resort where they had stayed for a honeymoon 25 years before. Because of his wife's delayed work schedule, the husband went first. And then when he got there, he received a message that she would meet him soon. So he sent her this email in reply, but because he typed one letter wrong in the email address, it went by mistake to an old woman in Oklahoma whose minister husband had just died the day before. Here is what she read. Dearest, well, the journey is over and I've finally arrived. I was surprised to find they have email here now. They tell me you will be coming soon. It will be good to be together again. Love as always. P.S. Be prepared. It's quite hot down here. And we can see, actually how easily we get caught up in stories. They may not even be our own stories. We learn them or they came in from the culture and then we get lost in the mind creations. But it's not just us. As we know, too, we sit here in a certain way uh, in silence and yet our breath with the trees and our movement and the water in our bodies and everything that is true of us, our mind and consciousness, connects with all the rest of humanity, the rest of the world. John Gatto, New York City Teacher of the Year, when he received his award, he castigated the school board and the mayor for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children in the school system. And then he said, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence and racism, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, 
lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. What does this do to our children, he asked. And so the Buddha looked out and he saw the same kinds of forces at his time, of greed and aggression and delusion and denial, and saw, as we can, how they are rooted in clinging to a small sense of self, to a limited identity, to our body, our way of being, us versus someone else. It's called the body of fear, in some ways, this small or contracted sense of self. And we've all experienced it at moments as we've been sitting and walking, each in our own way. And yet while we experience this, the clinging, the fear, the depression, the confusion that comes, something in us also can sense the possibility of greater compassion and greater freedom. We know, as the Buddha did, that this is not the only way. And what we discover as we practice together, what the Buddha discovered, that this is not our true identity. And in a certain way, meditation, more than anything else, is an invitation to a radical shift of identity from this small sense of self to our Buddha nature, to our true nature, to what Ajahn Chah used to call jit-derm, jit-derm, which means original mind. And one of the descriptions in the Buddhist tradition of this original nature that we return to, or Buddha nature, is the ten paramitas, or the ten perfections of the heart. And sometimes they're taught in a kind of linear way, the perfections of patience and generosity and renunciation and truthfulness and so forth, which I'll talk about some tonight. Kind of developmentally, they're, they're spoken above about... Um, almost in a mythological way, all the previous birth stories of the Buddha. And somebody said, you know, oh, venerable, blessed one, how long does it take to become a Buddha? And he said, oh, 100,000 mahakalpas and four immensities of practicing patience and compassion and truthfulness and integrity and so forth. Well, how long is a mahakalpa? He said, imagine a mountain that is seven yojanas high, seven yojanas wide and seven yojanas long. A yojana is the distance an ox cart can go in a day, so about seven miles, okay? So here's a mountain taller than Mount Everest, as wide and as, as deep, and every hundred years a bird comes with a silk scarf in its beak and drags the silk across the top of that mountain, wearing it away slightly every hundred years. When that mountain is worn down by the bird, that's one mahakalpa. <laughs> You hear this and you go, oh my God, you know, nine days was tough. (laughs) But a hundred thousand mahakalpas. And if we take it as a model in that way, I've got to practice patience, I've got to practice compassion, I've got to, and so forth, it's impossible. Because it's not meant to be taken in that way. It's actually speaking archetypally. It's speaking um, a language of the, spirit or the soul or the imagination that's not within time. If you take it in time, it makes no sense. And what it says is 
that this is not about the small sense of self. You can't make your personality into this. This speaks about something that is eternal, that is timeless, that is so much bigger than the small stories that we get lost in. And the invitation of our practice is to step into this greater vision that is our true nature. The point is not the future of humanity, said one sage, but the presence of eternity. Not our ideas about how we're going to fix things and so forth. Yes, we have to tend to that. But underneath, if the tending doesn't come from a vision of that which is timeless and wise and genuinely connected, it will just be spinning our wheels. So what does this have to do with our sitting here? It's really a beautiful thing for me to see people come into interviews over the course of the week because you all go through your ups and downs. Um, It never gets better and better and better. It gets better and worse and better and worse and sort of oscillates. It does get better, but with lots of waves as you experience that. One sitting, it's glorious, and another sitting, oh my God, how many more sittings do I have to tolerate? You know, and then another sitting, oh, this is great, I'm going to sign up for a longer retreat. And then a few sittings later, what was I thinking, right? (laughs) But what we start to see is in that there's a kind of settling and releasing and opening that's beautiful to observe and a movement from the small sense of self as our identity to that which is greater. I went to a dinner in the Bay Area some time ago and to do some teaching. The dinner sort of came at the end of it for the hospices of the San Francisco area because I've done a lot of work with death and dying, sitting with people in various circumstances since the days of the monastery and sitting with corpses in the charnel grounds and so forth. And after I did the teaching, one of the people who sat with me at the dinner table was a a Palestinian man who's become a very good friend of mine named Salam Khalili. And so I said to him, we were talking, I said, what brings you to do hospice work? And he said, well... He said, my experience in prison. I said, what's that? Because I've done a lot of work in different prisons and quite interested. He said, well, I was a journalist in Jerusalem in the late 60s, before and after the 67 war. And I was writing about a free Palestinian state and Palestine, Palestinians having part of Jerusalem as a capital. And at that time, it was forbidden to do so in in Israel, and so periodically I'd be carted off to jail or prison. I spent about six years on and off in prison. I'd write and they'd arrest me. And while I was in prison, once in a while I would get beaten or tortured in some way, which happens in war. It happens on both sides. It's not like one side or it's just what happens. People go insane in war. He said, so one day I was in this prison and this guard was beating me and kicking me and I died. He said, there I was on the floor and this boot was kicking me and blood was coming out of my mouth and the police report says that I died. But actually what happened is all this pain and then all of a sudden it stopped and I was floating on the ceiling watching it. People hear these stories um, because they happen in accidents. They also happen in meditation. There are ways of actually leaving your body and um, it's not that difficult to do. But this happened to him. And he said, I watched it and I felt so peaceful because it wasn't really my body then. That was just what was happening. And then something interesting happened. 
He said, what happened is that the bubble of the sense of my consciousness observing myself popped, broke, and all of a sudden I became everything. He said, I was the walls of the prison and the, the old green paint flecking off the walls. I was the body there, but I was also the boot kicking it, you know, and the dirt under the fingernails of the guard. And I was the goat whose bleeding you could hear from the window outside. And I was all of it. And I knew that I was never born and never could die. And he said, then I looked at this and I said, what is all the fuss about? Um, He said, I felt so peaceful and so joyful because I knew who I really was. He said, and then a few days later, I woke up in this broken body at the bottom of a cell. He said, but I was smiling, you know, and it took a while for my body to heal. And I got out of prison and I couldn't do anything for the Palestinians anymore. It didn't make any sense. He said, I married a Jewish woman. I have Jewish-Palestinian children, and that's my answer. So he said, I sit with people who are dying because I want to let them know that it's nothing to be afraid of, basically. And there is a certain way that as we come and practice together here, and you sit through your pain and fear and loneliness and depression and longing and ideas and all the different things that will come and go. There is a steadying of your being in the midst of the tension in the body. There's an opening of the mindfulness of resting in awareness itself as the mind tells its stories and the unfinished business of emotional waves come and go that allows us to return to what we already know, to who we already are. Hafiz, again the Iraqi poet, he says, the mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. And you sit here and the mind does all that stuff and something greater than that, the knowing, the awareness itself, becomes able to contain and be the witnessing of it and beyond that, as Salam experienced. Now, it's difficult for some of you, I know, some of us, because we're tremendously loyal to our suffering. We've suffered, we're the victims of our suffering, we're the wounded people in some ways, and, you know, I'm one of them. And I've gone through all my stuff and my years of therapy and various things like that. Remember that passage I read from Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst again, where he says that... uh, People resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It's more disrupting to find you have a profound nobility of character than to find out that you're a bum. And there's a certain way in which meditation really asks of us a willingness to, yes, bow to, to accept the the measure of sorrows, the struggles that we have. And yet, as we honor them, there's also a kind of letting go of the armoring, uh, um, an undressing, if you will, of these layers so that something beautiful can shine through them. Victor Hugo, who wrote 
I met a man on the street, a very poor man who was in love. His hat was old, his coat was out at the elbows, the water passed through his shoes, and the stars shone through his soul. And there's moments here, there's gaps, we're lost in things, and then there opens a moment and realize, wow, I was really caught in that. You know, in the dining room, or taking our walk, or changing clothes, or coming into a sitting. And then all of a sudden the space opens up and say, wow, I was really in that, but that's not what's here now. This, this, this space of knowing, of the one who knows, begins to open up. And with it comes this beautiful and inherent wisdom. As Alice Walker wrote, she said, one day I was sitting quiet, feeling like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. And this kind of knowing which we carry from before we were born begins to awaken in the stillness and the steadiness of our practice. It's as if we've been daydreaming or asleep and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, this is what it's about. I mean, we see it when we're with someone who's dying. We see it when something important happens in our life. And the ten perfections then are not a description of perfecting ourselves in some way, but rather they're reminders of this inherent true nature that is who we are underneath the body of fear or all this other stuff. And I'll talk about some of them, partly because they're a pleasure to talk about and because they may resonate in you as you remember your practice over these days or even more deeply as you remember the, what Thomas Merton called the secret beauty that we don't see, let ourselves see in each other, if we really looked and saw it, he said our problem would be we would fall down and worship each other. How would we deal with that? And the first of these is called, it's sila, is virtue. Anna talked about it. Um, but it's really adi sila. These are all the inherent virtue. Adi means the higher or the natural virtue. And Ajahn Chah used to love to talk about integrity and virtue. Um, It was one of his favorite subjects. Um, Integrity within yourself, integrity within others. And the integrity is basically to say what's true, to be with what's so, and to not cause harm to another being. To not add to the pain of your own body, of your own heart. To not add to the pain of another being. So... Lloyd Reynolds, who was the great American calligrapher of this past century, wrote this beautiful poem in this wonderful hand. He was one of my wife's teachers, master. He writes, A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) And there's some way in the monastery in which There's a kind of care where you don't step on the ants and the bugs. And there's a beauty to that integrity 
that our virtue is let us not harm another being. And there was a time when a person's word was gold and when a person was really measured by their actions. Here's a story, an old um, story from the Christian Desert Fathers. Abbot Anastasius had a Bible written on very fine parchment worth 18 pieces of gold. And once a young brother came to visit him and seeing the book, magnificent book, made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read the book, found it was gone, he realized it was taken. But he didn't send after him to inquire about it for fear that the young brother might add perjury to the theft. Didn't want him to have to lie about it and make it worse. Well, the brother went down to Alexandria to sell it, and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. And the buyer said, leave it with me and I find out whether it's worth that much. And he took it up to the monastery to the abbot and said, Father, look at this, please. Tell me whether it's worth 16 gold coins. And the abbot looked and said, yes, it's a very fine book. It's worth at least that much. So the buyer went back to the young brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius, and he said, it's a truly fine book worth at least that much. And the brother asked, was that all he said? Did he make no other remarks? No, said the buyer, not a word. Well, said the brother, give it to me. I've changed my mind. I don't want to sell it. And he hastened back and begged the abbot with tears to take it. But the abbot would not accept it and said, go in peace, young brother. I make a present of it. But the brother said, if you do not take it back, I shall never find peace in my life. And after that, he dwelled with Abbot Anastasius, and they lived happily ever after, or whatever (laughs) happens in these stories. But what's beautiful about the story for me is not just his kindness, but the kind of resonance of integrity, that here something happened, and he will not pay it back in that limited coin of fear and greed. He will only pay it back from the integrity of the heart. It's like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, now almost 15 years under house arrest. Um, Her husband dying of cancer in England, her children graduating from college, and the military saying, you can go back, we'll let you out. The only thing is that if you leave Burma, we may not allow you to come back. And she's this little, frail little woman Deal. Just unshakable. She will not move. And it's not from my friends and people who know her, not out of hatred and not out of um, ambition. She simply knows this is what's given for her to do and this is what's right. And she lives from that place. And we each, we hear these stories in a certain way, they're kind of grand stories. Not in a certain way, they are. But at the same time, we each, every day as we sit and walk and go through our circumstances, there's suffering, difficulties that we face, and there's the opportunity, how will we treat the bug crawling over the paper? How will we treat the person that we live with? How will we treat ourselves? And from the, our Buddha nature, there is this kind of integrity. And with it, there also comes a tremendous generosity, one of the other of the paramitas. And generosity isn't because you're supposed to be generous. I mean, it's certainly one of the traditional 
trainings. It's not out of impoverishment or something, but it's really out of inner abundance. As the poet Rumi says, walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anybody still sober in the spring weather must be really afraid. And it's finding that our happiness comes not by clinging, but by giving it away. It's just our, our true nature. This from a novel um, by Mary Gatskill. And in it she writes of a character, Veronica, who's a social work intern in one of the worst neighborhoods in Watts. Veronica had seen a stray cat known in the neighbor as Baldy and gotten the idea to feed it. She worried, though, what the people she worked with around the community center would think. At first I thought they were angry with me, the men. They glared and they said, he don't know what to do with anything like that. He ain't never had anything that good in his life. And I said, well, I'll just try. And I opened the can. And they stopped playing pool and cards, and they all watched when I put it down. And I can tell you the way that cat buried his head in that can. He'd thrust his head down, fingers splayed, his voice rolling, softly gobbling. He looked up at us, and if cats could cry, tears would have been streaming down his face. Nobody said a word. And then one of the men crouched down and held the can so the cat could get to it better. And every day after that, I brought in a cat of food, I'm a can of food, and every day the men would stop and gather to watch Baldy eat. It was probably one of the few times that they got to see a righteous need completely satisfied. And the thing that's true about generosity is that it wants to come out of us when we can. It really does. And as it does, um, it expresses not, oh, I'm giving to you, but here we are. What else could we do? Consider the generosity of the one-year-old, writes Alison Luderman, one of my favorite poets, who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails, her battered cardboard book swung open on their soggy pages. If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes every simple object an offering. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And the generosity on the retreat, you can feel it, is care for one another, but it's also feeding yourself. You sit and you take a cup of tea when you're mindful, and there's a sense of really taking in a cup of tea or a bowl of soup, feeding yourself or offering yourself forgiveness or kindness or whatever it is that you're struggling with as you're sitting and walking. There comes this possibility of a deep generosity toward one another, toward the world in which we live, 
and especially toward this one sitting here. The perfections, our own nature, integrity, generosity, one of the next of the perfections is the perfection of patience. I saw a cartoon by Matt Groening. Um, You know those little kind of creatures that are in life and hell. Many of you know him, the guy who created The Simpsons. And one of them sitting there like you in meditation, this kind of little, you know, faux meditation mudra, smiling and saying, I am living in the eternal present. And the next scene says, the next things, um, I only find myself in the now. In the now, everything is complete. All is here and now. No need to long for anything. Timeless, perfect, you get, you know, one thing after another. Ah, the great space of presence. And then there's a little ding in the second to the last box, just a sound. And then you see him, dang, that microwave popcorn takes a long time. (laughs) You know? And we're like him, you know? We're sitting here being the Buddha. Oh, the breathing in and out. I have this great experience. And then you go and you get in line for lunch. Oh, the line is so long. You know, if only people would move ahead and go over to that other table and, you know, then I could get to my food sooner. Or, you know, if only the bell would ring. Or if only whatever when you're in traffic, you know, that small sense of self. But something else starts to open up for us here poem from a friend. She wrote, I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. (laughs) That includes time resting with lizards sunning on the rock, writing down a dream remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors osprey's nest, wandering and listening in the unseen silence of my life. And patience isn't so much about waiting for something. That's basically impatience. The word Suzuki Roshi uses is constancy, an ability just to realize that we can be here now and here now and present for what is. And you can feel it growing, you know, with its ups and downs over the course of these days. But I know that as I became more constant in the monastery, I also was learning the constancy to be with my kid as a teenager, you know, going through all those cycles, or to be in my marriage, or to be in the traffic jams in the Bay Area, which we have plenty of. It's really the same game. What is it like to discover that we can be live more and more in the reality of the present, in a timelessness that is here. And things come and go, we get caught in them, but that's not who we really are. Story. Someone left a retreat in Spirit Rock to fly back to where they lived. And uh, she got to the airport, went in and got herself some reading material at the little airport shop and some cookies to eat, and then went to sit at the gate, sitting there, put her stuff down. Another guy sat down next to her in the chair on the other side of this little table. And then as she was sitting, 
he reached over and opened her bag of cookies. <laughs> Unfortunately, she'd been on retreat, so okay, you know, took a deep breath. She looked at him, he smiled at her, opened it, and offered her a cookie. <laughs> okay, she took one, he smiled and took one too. And they sat there reading, and he kept taking them as she did. Finally, there's one cookie left in the bottom. He looked at it, smiled at her, took it out, broke it in half, offered her half of it. I mean, the nerve, right? She went through a lot. Then they called her plane, you know, gets on the plane, takes her stuff, seat belts in, gets settled, puts her purse under the seat, then opens her purse to get out her reading material. And as she does, she looks inside, and her bag of cookies is in there. One of the things about patients is that we have all these stories about how they're doing it and who they're supposed to be and how it's supposed to happen. And, and again, returning to our true nature is to see this is the mind, the storytelling mind. Boy, if you haven't seen it in these days, um, I can't imagine that you haven't seen it. All the channels, you know, 108 channels. All kind of empty. (laughs) I mean, almost as bad as what's on the TV. It's true. So something begins to shift, and instead of taking time and struggle and so forth to be the reality, there comes the reality of here we are, and this other, you know, points of view and so forth. We don't grasp them. Now, with this, there also grows another of the sense of perfection, which is called determination. And that, you know, is the quality of being able to be with what's beautiful, what's difficult, with what they say in the Tao, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. To open to the whole play, the music of life. And I think about it in different ways. And the kind of determination is the determination of Rosa Parks to just stay in her seat. It's the determination of John Muir. There's a really amazing passage in John Muir's naturalist writings. He was in the Sierras, and there was this huge storm coming up. And he said, I immediately got out of the cottage and went and climbed the highest ridge that I could. I scrambled to the summit of the highest ridge. And then it occurred to me what a fine thing it would be to climb one of the trees and obtain a wider outlook and get my ear close to the aeolian music of the whole forest in its glorious storm. And he climbed a 150-foot Douglas spruce in the wildest storm in the Sierras and lashed himself to the top and described how the tree would make an arc of 20 and 30 degrees and what it was like, like a field of waving grain with the other trees, naked branches booming like waterfalls, exuberance of light and motion, the vibration of pine needles, the hiss, the whole music and the smell of it. That's determination. Okay, let's just stay where we are in the midst of all of Let us see what is possible. Because what we're learning here is not for us on retreat. Yeah, you can be a yogi and walk slowly. And, you know, at one retreat center, the kids call us the night of the living dead, right? You know? (laughs) It's not about that. It's about when you're ready to, you know, when somebody you love is dying. 
and they're frightened and they're in pain, and you can say, yeah, I know what it's like to sit with fear. I've done that. Great fear. I know what it's like to sit with pain. I know, and it's okay. You can hold their hand and say, I understand this. Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who says, go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide. And you must be open as a vessel, lying on the beach, letting it fill you up, and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear. With a deep breath, it has to be as deep as the pain. One reaches a kind of inner freedom from pain, as though the pain were not yours, but your body's. The spirit lays the body on the altar. And there is in our practice a growing capacity to be with this human incarnation in all its tainted glory, as Oscar Wilde would say, in all its measure of sorrows and all its beauty. And there comes with this a couple more factors. Truthfulness. Truthfulness is, who said it, maybe it was Anna or Trudy or Gina in the talk about Mara. I see you, Mara. I see you. This is fear. Oh, bow to fear. Fear, fear. Whoops, it's getting worse. Oh, terror, terror. I feel like I'm dying, dying, dying. Wow, I'm doing pretty good. Pride, pride, you know, and you just kind of, there it is. A truthfulness that can see what is so. A person can no more diminish the glory of the divine by refusing to acknowledge it than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of their cell. When we sit and we come back to who we really are, to this space of awareness that contains all things, allows all things, and yet is unmoved, I mean, just let's take a moment. Try not to be aware. Try not to listen. Try not to hear these words. I'm not going to be aware. How far do you get? You can't do it, can you? Awareness is here. It's present now. And we begin more and more to trust this and then to see from this place that we can bear the truth and that we can speak the truth. Martin Luther King, who says... I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. And then I have to add to it a couple more things. Because I got a phone call yesterday from some friends um, who have come to Spirit Rock at different times, um, Julia Butterfly Hill and Joan Baez, who are sitting in a tree in south-central Los Angeles, and they called to see if I knew some Buddhist monks and nuns who would come and chant and help them, because there's a whole big um, demonstration in south-central right now. There's a the largest community green farm in a city in any place in the country is a, is about to be sold by the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors to a developer, and it has 360 gardens of various 
campesinos and people who live in, in, in East Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so this is from Cesar Chavez. He says, when we're really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that our lives are all that really belong to us. So it's how we use our lives that determines what kind of persons we are. It's my deepest belief that only by giving our lives to that which is true do we find life. I'm convinced that the truest act of courage, the strongest act of humanity, is to sacrifice ourselves for something higher. To be human is to suffer for what we believe. God help us to be human. So there's a kind of willingness, like Aung San Suu Kyi, that's asked of us to say, this is the way that it is. This is our measure of suffering. This is the hell that we have to go through. This is the beauty that we experience. This is the way that it is. Greed isn't the way. Hatred isn't the way. Perhaps one of the most important Dharma moments for me in learning from my own teachers came working in the Cambodian refugee camps with Mahagosananda, um, who is the Gandhi of Cambodia, quite a wonderful man. He came and taught here. We brought him here to teach one of the three-month retreats here years ago. Very dear friend. And then for 15 years, he did peace marches across Cambodia during the wartime. And people would grenade and shoot. And he would have you know hundreds of monks and people with him. And he just kept walking peacefully in the midst of it all and doing metta prayers. So we were together in Sakeo and Kawidang, which were a couple of the very large camps on the Cambodian border. And, um, you know, 50, 100,000 people. And then he got permission from the UNHCR, refugee commissioner, let's make a Buddhist temple for the people because their temples have burned, the village is destroyed. And so people came and built a kind of bamboo platform with a roof on top of it. And the day that the temple was supposed to open in the central courtyard, um, word had gone around the camp that this was going to happen, Sakeo had a lot of refugees from the Khmer Rouge, including underground. Um, with them came a number of Khmer Rouge commandos. And the word that went around is, if anybody goes to that temple, when we get back to Cambodia, you will all be killed. And it was very serious because so many... All, so many elders were killed, so much was destroyed. So we wondered who would come and how many people would come. And Gosananda and I and others went through the camp that morning, ringing and gong, traditionally inviting people to come to the temple. And at 10.30 in the morning, the gathering came. People began to gather. And 25,000 people filled the square this huge sea. And then he got up there on this little bamboo platform with the Buddha. And then you could look out. I was with him, and these were people who were in shock, the kind of trauma of the terrible things that happen in the world. You know, a grandfather and one niece or nephew or grandchild, you know, an uncle and a couple of kids that remained. Everybody else had been killed, family destroyed. Um, Holocaust. And I thought, all right, what is he going to say? to this group of suffering humanity. And he sat for a while very quietly and then put his hands together. He was very kind of gentle and 
beautiful spirit, looked out across the crowds, a little bit of tears, and then he began to to chant in Khmer or Sanskrit and in Cambodian. Um, The words from the beginning of the Dhammapada, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over. And they hadn't heard, you know, chanting. And they hadn't heard the sacred words for maybe 10 years. And pretty soon they started to chant with him. And after a while, 25,000 people sitting there from this suffering, chanting, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And it was as if he sat there and told the truth that was even bigger than their suffering. Yes, you've suffered incredibly. And even so, hatred will not cease by more hatred. This is the ancient and eternal law. And we sit here somehow to awaken to that truth that we know in ourselves. Metta and compassion are part of the perfections of the heart, as truthfulness is itself. And over and over, in all these different ways, as we move about and encounter one another, or as we sit here and memories of things that we've done that we feel shame about, or guilt about, or regret, or that we feel angry and betrayed about, because we've all been betrayed, every one of us as humanity. It's, it's, it's part of what happens. That somehow we learn the heart's, the great heart of compassion, the capacity to offer our forgiveness to ourself and to one another. This is a prayer that was written by an unknown prisoner in Ravensbrück concentration camp and found on a paper left by the side of a child who had died. Dear Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. And do not remember all the suffering they have inflicted on us alone, but remember too the fruits we have found thanks to this suffering our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart which has grown out of all this. And when they come to judgment, let these fruits which we have borne also be a part of their mercy. Really almost unthinkable when one hears this. And yet each in our own way We are called upon, there are sufferings and struggles that we individually participate in and that we participate in as a collective of humanity. What spirit will we bring to them? And then the last factors are joy and equanimity. It's not just compassion and loving kindness, but there is a a necessity, one of the factors of enlightenment. The Buddha said, you cannot be awakened without also discovering the beauty and joy of life. André Gide writes, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, 
you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. That suffering isn't enough. And the sorrows that we have and the suffering of the world, the Buddha said that suffering is the beginning of the path. But that joy, he was called the happy one, liberation, is the the fruit of the path. Life is not a journey to the grave to arrive in a beautiful, artfully, and well-preserved body, but rather to slide in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. (laughs) And one of the things that's important as you practice here in this shift of identity, when I speak about the loyalty to our suffering, is that there will be periods where ease comes, happiness comes, well-being, the gaps between our neurotic thoughts or our fears. It's really important to allow these, to inhabit them, to let them fill the cells of your body, not as a kind of attachment or a kind of let's paste it over and all smile and so forth, but from the, from the very depth of being of this life that we've been given, this mysterious life. To me, the, probably the best poem I've read in a decade um, was Jack Gilbert's poem in The New Yorker called A Brief for the Defense, and just a few lines from it. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. (laughs) We must admit that there will be music despite everything. And whether it's the Dalai Lama carrying the sorrows of the people of Tibet or Gosananda, or people that you know and love who are wise, or yourself, that bird is agreeing, right? (laughs) There is in this life a beauty that is so central to our being. And we are light, we are filled with light. And it's not the light of some, you know, kind of fantasy. Um, It is the consciousness with which we are all illuminated. It is who we really are. There is, says Thomas Merton, in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and joy and rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to us from the unseen roots of all creation. And we get quiet and take a walk in the woods or sit here in the morning light or the evening light as it fades and there's this kind of rose color with the gray in the sky. Um, And boy, if somebody said, you only have a few more days to live, would you drink that in? Say, oh, uh, it's not enough. I want more days of this. And with it comes a great peace of heart. The peace because we're not striving to be somewhere else, but the great equanimity to be without anxiety about the imperfections of the world. To see the whole of life, Hermes Trismegistus, the alchemical sage, he writes, 
perceive that you're not yet begotten, that you are in the womb, that you're young, that you're old, that you have died, that you're in the world beyond the grave. Grasp in your mind all of this at once, all times, and then you can begin to see with the eyes of the divine. And something in us knows this, this timelessness is where we come to rest. Often we confuse perfection with how to become perfect. You know, you jog enough, treat your lover well, take enough vitamins, floss, you know, a little more therapy, and you're going to be okay. Perfect your personality. Ah, Good luck, right? But this isn't really about that. It's some, the game is so much bigger and at the same time so much more intimate to who we really are. Ajahn Chah says we take refuge in the Buddha. What is this Buddha? When we see with the eyes of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any history. The Buddha is the ground of being, the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was never enlightened, not in India, He was never born, he never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place, our refuge. When we return to this, all things in the world are free for us. They become our teacher, proclaiming the one true nature of life. And this is the kind of blessing that the Buddha offers to those who practice. May you As the Buddha says, may you find the joy, the freedom that I too have discovered. May you too find it. It's not, I mean, the Buddha had his own realization and then he looked and said, you too can have your realization. And it's not in India and it's not in the mountains and it's not at the end of long retreats. It's always here when we remember, when we return. And you know it, some part of you knows it as deeply as you know your own name. It's that close. And when we return, we become a gift to the world, which sorely needs it. And this, the, the troubled parts of the world, we don't need more oil and more energy and more anything. We need less greed, less hatred, less prejudice, less ignorance. That's what the world needs more than anything. And with the sense of who you are, you can return, it said, with gift-bestowing hands to your work, whatever it is, as a, you know, a kindergarten teacher or a parent or a gardener or a person making an ethical business or a writer or an artist, whatever it happens to be, a politician, please. <laughs> A blessing. Hmm. So to end, it's a beautiful thing to come together and practice. And yes, your body gets released. You can feel it. Your faces start to shine. Your thoughts quiet down. All of these things happen. But also the invitation is something so big you know, to, 
to return to that great love and freedom that is who you are. Don't settle for anything less. A poem from Ngodup Paljur, a Tibetan poet writing in English. And it's a nice poem to read in New England. Robert Frost and I have one thing in common. He loves woods, and so do I. But there seems to be a big difference in the way we set forth in life's journey. He's a goer, and I'm a sitter. He has miles and miles to go before he sleeps, while I have years and years to sit to reach the same destination. (laughs) Let's sit for a moment. Thank you. We're sitting with Julia and Joan and Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, and all these other people in the world together. So it's a beautiful thing. Enjoy the evening walk. This talk was given by Jack Kornfield at Insight Meditation Society on May 25, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Arch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.